Welcome to today's edition of the Career 100 podcast. This series is designed to introduce students to different career options that are in demand and share the path each practitioner has taken to arrive in their current position. Sometimes progress is measured in centimeters, not yards, because if I got very impatient in the beginning, I would expect a person to go from point A to point Z in a short amount of time. And now I realize that if I go from A to B, then that's great progress. And that I have to be patient and realize that some people will never make it to Z, but at least they can make it a little bit, and that's better than they were before. Hi, this is Felicia Gopal. I want to thank everyone for joining us and welcoming you to today's podcast and interview. Today we're continuing our series on the top 100 careers featuring the speech-language pathologists. SLPs, as they call themselves, diagnose and treat communication and swallowing disorders for patients. They work in schools or healthcare facilities. Some work in patients' homes. Speech-language pathologists typically need at least a master's degree. They must be licensed in most states, although the requirements vary by state. In 2010, there were 123,000 jobs as speech-language pathologists, and that number is expected to grow by 23% until 2020. And that's faster than the average growth in many careers. As the large baby boom population grows older, there are many instances of health conditions that cause speech or language impairments, such as strokes, brain injuries, hearing loss, amongst others. This will result in the increased demand for speech-language pathologists. Today's guest is Katie Schwartz. She's the director of business speech improvement. She is a speech-language pathologist with extensive experience in many settings, including medical education, private practice, as well as working in corporations. She's the author of four books, including three on speech-language pathology and one on going to school as a freshman called Portable Parent. Ms. Swartz is an enthusiastic speech-language pathologist who loves the diversity of this field. Friends, Our guest today is Katie Schwartz. So could you tell me a little bit about how you became a speech pathologist? Sure. I became a speech-language pathologist, normally known as an SLP for short, because of a rather roundabout method. When I was a child, I had a speech impairment myself. I had trouble saying a lot of sounds, and through some excellent therapy, that was corrected. I wasn't really fond of the process, but the results worked. When I was 16, I went abroad as an exchange student, and before I left, I had been taught Portuguese because I went to Brazil, but I had been taught by a Hungarian woman, and none of us thought about the implications of this. I arrived in Brazil with Hungarian-American-accented Portuguese, and it was totally ununderstandable, unclear, Okay. which resulted in my having to learn all over again how to pronounce the different sounds and the words, and I was really frustrated by this process. I hated the fact that nobody could understand me, and it made me think about what would life be like if I had had a stroke or some other problem, maybe a severe head injury, and I couldn't communicate, so it gave me a real sense of empathy for what it would be like to have a severe communication impairment. You know, that's an interesting statement because my 
nephew has a speech impairment. He actually is autistic. Like, it's very hard unless you spend a lot of time with him to understand sometimes what he's saying. And I know that he's been working with a speech pathologist most uh, recently, and his language is becoming much, much clearer. Again, because I don't spend a whole lot of time with him because I live away from him, it takes me like a day to get my ear kind of trained to what he's saying and how he says it so that I can understand what he's asking me if I'm spending time with him. But it's an important concept, and I never really thought about it from the perspective of an accent being taught to somebody and then them trying to be understand in a different language. That's an interesting story. Well, thank you. So what sorts of problems does a speech language pathologist solve? Basically, we help people communicate. And at times, we help people learn to chew and swallow safely, especially if we work in medical settings, but also sometimes in an educational setting. And every school system in the country, every public school system, is required to have the services of a speech-language pathologist available for children who need it, up to age 21 if a student not yet graduated from high school. We primarily help people with speech, language, voice, and stuttering problems. So it's a variety. In private practice, we may work on any of these or more. Got it. Now, you're making the distinction between speech-language pathologists. Is that because my list of the top 100 careers is not updated, and that's what you call yourselves, or is there a distinction between a speech pathologist and a speech-language pathologist? The official name is speech-language pathologist, but it is a big concept, big word, so many of us call ourselves speech pathologists. In short, we call ourselves SLPs, and that solves the problem. Sometimes we're known as speech clinicians, speech therapists, and we used to be known as speech correctionists. In schools, they're often known as speech teachers, though sometimes a speech teacher refers to a drama teacher and not a speech-language pathologist. So we go by a lot of names. Okay. So I heard that you're increasingly working in medical environments in terms of teaching somebody to swallow. What sorts of occasions would somebody have a problem swallowing? Well, a lot of neurological problems, sometimes cardiac problems or post-surgery, cancer, all kinds of things can result in problems in swallowing. And especially crucial is our work with neonatal intensive care units with premature babies who may not yet have learned to suck and swallow safely. If somebody swallows and they don't do it correctly, the liquid can go down into the lungs, which can cause pneumonia. And that's a very serious medical problem. So we try to teach people to swallow safely so that the liquids go down into the stomach and not into the lungs. Absolutely. So I'm intrigued by the concept of being taught to swallow because, of course, by this time, I know how to swallow and I do it kind of unconsciously. But there must be a process that you go through in order to teach somebody to swallow. Could you kind of give us the highlights of that? Sure. First, you have to figure out why they're not swallowing safely. And that can be done with a number of different medical tests some involving 
X-ray technology and others involving other kinds of technology. And people eat foods of different consistencies, such as thin liquids or thickened liquids or maybe applesauce or graham crackers or a type of food, the consistency of hamburger meat, chopped up meats, things like that. And we see what causes a problem in swallowing, if anything does. And then we can figure out strategies. Depending on the cause, the solution may be helping people learn to hold their heads at a different angle, to sit up straight, to have food be at a certain temperature, or very spicy or not spicy at all. All kinds of things make a difference in swallowing. Excellent. So you talked about an SLP working in the medical environment. Could you talk a little bit also about an SLP working in a school environment? Sure. We work with children of all ages from birth to 21 when they're no longer obviously children and work in schools. Sometimes we work in daycare centers, early intervention centers, all kinds of places. A typical day may involve working with children on language skills, for example, opposites. The opposite of hot is cold, or learning about synonyms. The synonym for happy is glad. We may help them learn to follow directions. First you do this, then you do that. We work increasingly with students with autism because autism is increasing numbers in our population. And we may help people with autism learn concepts related to wherever they're at, for example, sequencing and time issues. At 10 o'clock, we do this. At 11 o'clock, we do that. We help them learn to interpret facial expressions if that's what they need. Autism is a disorder of both social and communication impairments. So students may have trouble understanding when somebody is happy or understanding what a given tone of voice means or understanding that on Mondays you do one thing at 9 o'clock, but on Thursdays you do something different at 9 o'clock because many people with autism like a rigid set schedule so they can anticipate what's coming next. We also work heavily with teachers, classroom teachers, to teach them how to include the student in the classroom, how to help the student make friends, how to help the student feel successful, and how to help the other students interact with the students and have a peaceful classroom. So we work closely with the teachers, we work closely with the students, and we work especially closely with the curriculum. So the curriculum is now we're going into what's called a common core curriculum, which many states have ratified. So if a student moves from one state to the other, they are doing pretty much the same thing in the different classrooms. But lots of times, students with language impairments especially have trouble with concepts because they don't understand the language, not because they're not smart. So they may need help with, say, word problems and math, understanding what the word problem means so they can figure out whether they should add or subtract. So we have to understand the curriculum in an educational setting. The role of an SLP definitely seems to be much expanded as the population in the U.S. changes. Are there any common myths or misconceptions about being an SLP? Do you have advice that you would give somebody, young professionals, about the career? Absolutely. This field is broadening. And the misconceptions, though, are that it's 
back to what it was in the 1950s or the 1960s, where mostly what speech pathologists did then was correct lists. And now we can do so much more. Many of us are in private practice, and that's going to change dramatically as healthcare reform expands so that more people can get the services that they need. Others of us are working in settings that are totally unheard of. I particularly specialize in working in industry as a corporate speech-language pathologist. So that takes our skills to a whole different population of adults who may have disorders but who may also have issues like accents or problems in other communication skills. So there's so much that we can do with this. It is not a limiting field at all. It's a field where we're increasingly being used for purposes that were never considered 15 years ago. So it also sounds like it's a rapidly changing industry because 15 years ago, while it seems like a very short amount of time, a lot of changes have happened in a lot of industries where it used to be how you did things is now you're doing something completely different. And it sounds like your field is definitely one of those fields because you said it's rapidly changing. And one of the things that really struck me as I was listening to your answer was the fact that you're working in corporate environments where you're working more with adults because, of course, here in the United States, one of the things that is increasingly happening is many more people are continuing to come to the United States, enter the workforce, and being able to be understood in the workplace is important not only to the U.S. future, but to their personal futures in terms of advancement. Yes, absolutely. Just the other day, a client contacted me and said that because of the help that he had received, he'd been able to get promotions. And so it means so much to people to be able to communicate and to communicate better. But remember, though, that accents are not a disorder, so we're expanding beyond disorders in many cases, to non-disordered communication, which just needs to be modified in some way. Yes. When I was on your site, one of the things that struck me is I tend to be somebody who talks very quickly when I'm presenting. And I know that it's something that I do because of nervousness, but I thought it was really interesting and something that I needed to probably delve into a little bit more professionally is talking with a person like yourself who can help me slow down my speech when I'm presenting so that all of the concepts that I have put together in my presentation were able to be clearly understood. I've taken enough breath so that people can absorb what it is that I am saying to them. And then perhaps that would, if you will, get me better results than I've been experiencing with my presentations. Absolutely. In fact, I just posted a YouTube video on that last night on some tips on how to slow down your communication, especially your rate of speech when you're nervous. Absolutely. So let me ask you, is there a career structure in your career field? Is there necessary education? Absolutely. High school students who are interested in this field need to focus on science, math, and English, and social studies would be awesome as well. It would be great to have some basic drawing skills 
because sometimes the only way you can communicate with somebody is by drawing a picture. And I'm talking about adults and children, well-educated and not. Sometimes when people have had strokes, they lose the ability to understand what you're saying, and sometimes they also lose the ability to read. So sometimes drawing is what's going to get you through a confusing situation. But uh, drawing skills would be helpful. Computer skills are also very helpful to get in high school because technology keeps changing. Now we're using apps for speech pathology purposes and increasing number of websites and interactive games. So those are some skills that a high school student would want. A college student should get into a program involving speech language pathology or communication disorders, which is basically the same thing, and make sure that that program is accredited by the American Speech and Hearing Association. If you contact the college department, you can ask them if the program is accredited. Now, that's the easy part. The hard part is going to be getting into a master's program in speech-language pathology. There aren't enough of them. There aren't that many of us who get PhDs so that we can teach. So it is hard to get into a master's program. Once you're in the master's program, you'll need to finish that, obviously. You'll need to take a national test. And then you go for nine months, at least nine months as of right now, of full-time employment under very close supervision, which is known as a clinical fellowship year. If you finish all of that and your master's program has been accredited by the American Speech and Hearing Association also, then you are awarded your certificate of clinical competence, which means that you can work in a lot of places with minimal supervision. And that's your career path. Now, if you're in high school right now, I don't know if this path will change at all. I know that in our sister field of audiology, hearing, are now required to have a doctorate. But as of right now, speech-language pathologists are only required to have a master's degree. So let me ask you to kind of look into the future. If your sister profession, audiology, is requiring now a doctorate, would your best guesstimate be that perhaps your career field is going to be headed in that same direction? Yes. And I have no evidence. I have not anything specifically, but there is so much to our field to understand. And the knowledge keeps progressing so quickly that my guess is that sooner or later, a doctorate will be required for this field as well. Hmm. Well, that is good information for somebody who is considering your field to understand. Now, you talked about that you would do an undergraduate degree. Is there any particular undergraduate degree that somebody would obtain? Yes. They need an undergraduate degree in either speech-language pathology or communication disorders. Communication disorders often is slightly more well-rounded and may include work with deaf education, work with learning disabilities, work with other areas. And basic audiology courses will be required whether your degree is in speech-language pathology or communication disorders. Audiologists have a basic knowledge of speech-language pathology and speech-language pathologists have to have a basic knowledge of audiology and oral rehabilitation to work with people who have hearing impairment. So what I was particularly asking or what I was getting to was you do your undergraduate, you do your master's, and perhaps you might go on and get a PhD. 
or a doctorate, let me ask you, do most uh, SLPs work in private practice or are the fields, the various different offshoots from your education, really a myriad of different choices? There's a total myriad of different choices. Most SLPs work in the schools right now. Biggest number work in medical settings. There's a lot of people who work in skilled nursing facilities and others who work in such a huge variety. One of the books that I have written is called Alternative Career Options for Speech-Language Pathologists. And I wrote it because somebody I had not known called me up out of the blue and said, I can't do what you're doing in corporate speech-language pathology. What else can I do? I had no idea who this person was, and I was stunned by the question. And so I spent the next year wondering about her question and researching the options. We do a lot of different things. And that's one of the neat things about this field, because if you get tired of one area, you can switch to another aspect. There's usually plenty of jobs available. Only 3.2% of speech pathologists right now are unemployed. Well, that's certainly a very attractive percentage and tells us that there is a lot of opportunities. And what I heard you say is because that your field is constantly, well, your field is evolving so that the skills that you have developed through your education and experience are being expanded so that you are taking on larger, different populations than you've taken on in the past. I know that my father has dementia, and the adult daycare facility that he attends, he is working with a speech pathologist. And I was rather surprised because the adult daycare facility that he went to in Philadelphia did not have that component. But I've noticed that all the places that we took a look at when we moved from New Jersey out here to California did include that component. And I wondered at the time whether or not that was a California requirement that they had to have that, or was that something that is just a good practice that is being practiced here in California? Well, I don't know California laws and regulations, but it's actually a very good practice because If done well, it can often slow down the progression of language loss, and it can show him the ways to communicate right now if he's not able to understand what you're saying. So, for example, with pictures, many people with dementia are now using pictures, photographs of themselves doing different things. So if a caregiver wants somebody with dementia to eat, they take a picture of them eating, and then they show it to them what it is they're supposed to do. And depending on what stage of dementia you're at, this can be very beneficial if it's the earlier stages. So a photograph album of the person doing activities of daily living can help the person to know what to do in the earlier stages. And that reduces everybody's frustrations. You know, my father has always been somebody who is easy to get along with, 
But I think that not being able to communicate clearly so that he's understood, he's adopted very interesting strategy. First and foremost, he doesn't talk as much as he used to. He responds, but he doesn't initiate a conversation very often. So that's part of his strategy. The other thing that he does that I think is interesting and certainly something that I've benefited from is having working with caregivers who are comfortable and used to working with people in similar situations. What I'm seeing them do is different sorts of strategies that I would have never thought of in order to engage him. So he's always been a big puzzle person. And so, you know, we're able to communicate through doing puzzles. I mean, the puzzles can no longer be, you know, the thousand, five thousand piece puzzles that we've done in the past, but still we're able to communicate And I've definitely noticed that his frustration with not being able to communicate has definitely gone down as I'm starting to work with caregivers who are more familiar and have different strategies and tactics to encourage him to use the language that he still has. Excellent. I'm glad it's such a successful situation then. Yes. There's a a wonderful book called The 36-Hour Day, which helps Many families and caregivers know how to communicate more effectively with people with dementia. But there's also a number of other great books on the subject as well. Great. You know what? I'm going to definitely include your first book in our show notes so that if somebody was interested in getting a copy of that, there'll be a link to that in our show notes. So if you had the opportunity to give a young Katie advice... What advice would you give yourself today, knowing what you know now, if you were just getting started? I think the first piece of advice I would give would be to improve my drawing skills. And the second piece of advice I would give would be to be aware that sometimes progress is measured in centimeters, not yards. Mm. Because if I got very impatient in the beginning, I would expect a person to go from point A to point Z in a short amount of time, and now I realize that if I go from A to B, then that's great progress, and that I have to be patient and realize that some people will never make it to Z, but at least they can make it a little bit, and that's better than they were before. You know what? I'm shaking my head here, and I'm just thinking that that is just a beautiful sentiment because the reality is progress is progress. You know, I think it, well, let me put it this way. Often it is my ego that says that, you know, you haven't gone far enough just because I know how far you could go. But for the person who was actually going through a particular circumstance, you know, to go from one point to the next point is progress for them. And so I have to take my measuring stick off of it and use their measuring stick. And oftentimes they're just as pleased to have gone from point A to point B, as opposed to my grandiose ideas that they had to go to point Z. Very well spoken. So what gets you up in the morning to serve your clients? The realization That communication is crucial, and these people are often so motivated to improve, and my excitement when they do improve. I think I'm as excited as they are when they get from point A to point B. 
because it's neat to see their satisfaction to know that life is going to be better for them because they can communicate more effectively. You know, it's really true. It's very gratifying in whatever role you have when you can see progress and know the delight that the person is going through and seeing the delight that the person is going through when they've made progress on a goal that they've set. Absolutely. I've had the privilege of helping some older children say their first words, and that was awesome. And are helping some younger children speak clearly for the first time or maybe to say their name clearly for the first time, which they could never do before. I've also had the excitement of working with adults who can finally be understood when they speak, maybe because they come from other countries or they have communication impairments, and know that life is going to be better for them because they can get their point across. As one person said to me, people understand me now the first time I speak. And she was so excited. Absolutely. It's something that many of us who talk just take for granted, but I can imagine the joy and the pleasure for somebody who is experiencing, I'm understood for the first time, the first time I say something rather than having to repeat themselves. I can imagine that having to repeat yourself when you think that you're speaking clearly is a little bit frustrating. Absolutely. So what changes are going on in your industry that a person considering the profession needs to be aware of? You talked about how your skills and background are now going into expanded opportunities. Is there anything else that you would share about what's changing in your industry? Sure. First of all, with healthcare reform, people are learning that they have to be more efficient and more effective. And research is trying to help us to do that. So keeping up on the research is really important. Another area that's changing is technology. Speech pathology has gotten into technology in a big way. Whatever is going to work and work faster and better is what we want. So, for example, the iPad and the iPhone and the iPod are increasingly being used in speech therapy in many places. And that's awesome because people really enjoy that. In some cases, it helps people to practice in between sessions so they can make faster progress that way. So those are some of the big issues, the payment situation and the efficiency and effectiveness and the technology. You know, oftentimes what I'm noticing is when technology is newly employed or increasingly employed in a profession, it has the opportunity through use to really transform and change what is possible in industries. And as I've talked to various different professionals in this series, I've been noticing that technology for many of them is becoming increasingly a very, very useful tool for how they go about what they do. Sure is. And especially interesting to me is the proliferation of technology for people with autism. Just yesterday, a new app came out, which supposedly is really good for this, but there are many others that also are very effective. There are iPads and iPods and iPhones that now have a selection of pictures, for example, that somebody who is autistic can use in increasing detail to indicate what he wants. For example, he might touch on a picture of a restaurant, his favorite restaurant, 
and then the picture changes and there's five things he likes to order from that restaurant. So he can touch the one thing that he likes to order from that restaurant and feels like eating right now. That's just one minor example, but there's many others that exist. It's much better people with communication disorders. Right. You know, I've definitely noticed that. I had the opportunity last time I visited with my nephew to be there when his therapist came in, his SLP came in, and she was definitely working with an iPad in order to get him. You know, at his age, I wondered at the time whether or not it was being used as a device to make what she was doing fun as opposed to necessarily, from my perspective, recognize it was a tool that she was using in order to assist him in being able to communicate more clearly. But I imagine it could probably have both of those uses at the same time. Absolutely. If it's not fun, then young children are not going to do it. But they can also be learning at the same time they're enjoying the experience. Well, I think that's probably true for not just young children, but certainly it makes it much easier when you are learning anything if it it is also fun because it makes it memorable, makes an impression, and, you know, it makes doing the work of whatever it is that you are doing go that much faster and engages the mind. So it has lots of different applications by making it fun. Sure. So why do you think that being an SLP is on the list of the top 100 careers, Katie? First of all, there's an increasing need for this service. As more babies are born who otherwise might have died due to birth defects, as more people are saved from severe impairments, from strokes and head injuries, but still retain mild problems, as more people live longer and have health-related conditions like dementia, then more speech-language pathologists are definitely needed. So that's one reason. Another reason it's on the top 100 careers, in my opinion, is the incredible versatility. We work and go where people talk, and people talk everywhere. So our field is expanding in the options that we offer. And it's just a fun field to be in because it's not a cookbook type of situation. Sure, there are procedures and understanding research, but there's a lot of creativity involved in trying to figure out how to make a given person learn faster and be a more effective communicator. So there's lots of different advantages to this particular career, and I strongly encourage young people who want to work in the helping fields, maybe they don't know if it's medical or educational, but they want to work in helping fields to consider this career. People who are bilingual are especially wanted and young males are especially wanted. Uh, men are needed as role models in many cases. But even monolingual females are quite valuable, and we need all the speech-language pathologists that we can get. Well, it sounds like a career that, from your voice and your enthusiasm, I can tell you really enjoy and you really believe in the power. In my life, as I've gone older, I've definitely seen a speech-language pathologist being used in not only for my nephew with autism, but also my father with dementia. And I think that as the world changes, the world ages, that those opportunities and for more and more people to be aware of 
the possibilities that an SLP can make a difference in, I think that's one of the reasons why, in my mind, this is going to be one of the top 100 careers. Great. So do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with us today? Basically, you need to set a goal. This is what you want to do and figure out how you're going to get there. There is funding available in many cases. The American Speech and Hearing Association has a list of scholarships for students, also a list of lots of information about the career on the website, www.asha.org, asha.org. And that this is just a cool career, so if this is for you, go for it. We need you. Absolutely. Katie, I thank you very much for your time. If somebody was interested in getting more information about you and your business, could you tell us a little bit more about your business and how people could get a hold of you? Sure. My business is called Business Speech Improvement, and you can find me online at www.businessspeechimprovement.org. I specialize in working with adults with communication needs, whether it's a disorder or a need for improvement in the workforce. And I believe that great speech makes business sense. So if people have questions, feel free to email me or look at my website. All right. So we will definitely have a link to your website in our show notes. Katie, it's been delightful to learn a little bit more about your profession. I can see that this is something that you are passionate about in terms of your enthusiasm, which you shared some of the things and challenges and opportunities that are available in your career. And I thank you. You're quite welcome. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you. To learn more about the college planning experience, I invite you to visit our website at College Funding Resource. I also encourage our listeners to keep coming back to listen to more of our Career 100 podcasts. If you like our podcasts, I also invite you to go into our iTunes channels and rate our podcasts. At College Funding Resource, you'll be able to listen for free to guests like Katie who have got valuable information to share about their careers. I want to thank all of my listeners for joining us today and hope you will join me again for the next installment of the Career 100 podcast. See you next time. Thank you for listening to today's edition of the Career 100 podcast. We hope you'll join us again for our next podcast, where we'll continue to interview experts in the top 100 careers for 2011, giving you the insider's view of their chosen profession. If you'd like more information about planning and saving for college and to instantly download your free copy of College Funding Resources Report, Five Strategies That Parents Need to Start Using Today to Cut Their College Costs Tomorrow, visit www.collegefundingresource.com. That's www.collegefundingresource.com. This is Kathy Davis for the Career 100 Podcast.